Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, I am thrilled that we're speaking with Cameron Moore. You may recognize the name. She's been on the show before, and if you'd like to find out about how Cameron got started in this business, you can go back way, way, way back to episode number 61. You can just go to the communitycatspodcast.com website and put number 61 in the search bar or more in the search bar, and you will be able to find that show, and you can feel free to tune in and listen into that. But today, we have Cameron. Cameron is part of the team that created Target Zero, and she's just joined the Maddie's Shelter Medicine Program at the University of Florida as the Million Cat Challenge Program Manager. Cameron oversees shelter engagement for the Million Cat Challenge, a joint project of Maddie's Fund, the Maddie Shelter Medicine Program at the University of Florida, the UC Davis Court Shelter Medicine Program, and the ASPCA designed to save the lives of one million more shelter cats over five years. In her role at UF, Cameron will be in charge of lending a helping paw to shelters that are participating in the Million Cat Challenge, supporting them as they implement initiatives that will drive feline life-saving in their communities. She'll also work with them so they become more engaged with their fellow, fellow challengers. Cameron appears to have been born to be part of the Million Cat Mission and been guided by its five key initiatives at every stage of her professional life, even before the challenge existed. As a member of the original team that developed Target Zero, she completed over 50 shelter assessments in 16 states, identifying opportunities to implement proven best practices and increasing life saving. Through her efforts, many shelters were able to dramatically reduce shelter intake while increasing live release rates um, and to maintain those achievements. She also helped communities find ways to not only improve the live outcome of shelter animals, but to prevent homelessness and keep pets out of the shelters and with families who love them. She was also instrumental in helping the city of Jacksonville achieve and maintain a live release rate of over 90%, including launching the renowned Feral Freedom Program, which has successfully sterilized over 30,000 community cats. Founding a nonprofit cat rescue organization called Lucky Cat Adoptions in 2005 rounds out her resume. Lucky Cat has successfully helped over 8,500 cats and kittens through adoption and TNR. Well, Cameron, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much, Stacy. It's great talking with you. Yeah. So today's focus is on hurricanes. We have just completed hurricane season. And I know you are very, very intimately involved in um, Hurricane Irma in Florida. Uh, I was just wondering if you could sort of share with us some of your initial thoughts about hurricane response. Sure. Well, it definitely was a lesson learned, and especially for me. I've lived in Florida for 15 years now, and I've been through several hurricanes, but never on the forefront with animal welfare. And this was the first time that it really, I, I feel, like impacted me personally. So as part of um, the Maddie Shelter Medicine Program, we were assigned to perform pre- and post-storm assessments of needs for the 155 shelters around the state. And so we were responsible for contacting every shelter 
even before the storm hit to try to find out what do you need? Can we help you evacuate animals? You know, what were your damages after the storm? Distributing supplies to them. So it was very intense. The two weeks or the few days before the storm up to two weeks after the storm there was a lot of, of work involved and, and a lot of it done when we didn't even have power ourselves. So, but we, we learned a lot of amazing things and I think it will only help us for future incidents. And so was this assessment something that happens in most areas where a hurricane is hitting? Is this happening in other parts of the country or was this just a specific activity done in Florida? You know, honestly, I don't have the answer for that, Stacy. but in, in Florida, the University Florida's shelter medicine program has worked hard to compile a list of our shelters because there is no centralized database. So I'm not sure what other states are doing, but we definitely recommend that someone take the initiative and get that list of shelters because it did make it a lot easier for us to contact the shelters to figure out what help they needed and to get them help. If, if we didn't have that list, I don't know how we would have accomplished that. But even with the list, we had difficulties too because a lot of the shelters only provided their main contact number. So we're trying to call shelters that are without power, that, you know, the employees aren't necessarily there. And so we have no way of actually reaching them. So it was definitely a, a learning experience and also um, a way for us to update our information to be able to reach them in the future. So I'm envisioning that you had a group of volunteers basically sitting down with with questionnaires with certain questions and you called them before the storm and then you called them after the storm. And I'm curious what was on those questionnaires and what were the, the things that you learned, you know, before and after? Well, I'll tell you with, with Hurricane Irma, I think one of our biggest problems is that we didn't actually know where the storm was going to hit. The weather people would tell us, you know, one day it's going to be on the east coast of Florida. So every everybody in the east coast was like trying to prepare. And then they were like, nope, nope, it's going west. So then the east coast people were like, shoo, we don't have to worry about anything. And then people on the other side of the state had to worry. And then ultimately it went straight up the middle of our state. So that I think was an issue for us. But at the same time, Oh my gosh, I it's, it's just it was super overwhelming and and the the question so before the storm because we weren't sure exactly where it was going to hit. We didn't actually call everybody before the storm. We were trying to hit people that we knew were going to be directly impacted and trying to help them evacuate those animals out. That was the key was making room in the shelter getting the pre-storm animals out to safety so that we would have room in those shelters for the post-storm victims. So it was a couple of days of scrambling. That particular storm hit on a Sunday night, and we really started scrambling on Thursday beforehand to try to help shelters. But the, the thing that I found most crazy for me was we were running out of gasoline, like our gas stations were running out of gas and stores didn't have carriers. And so we're trying to help shelters evacuate. But, you know, like for me, I helped one particular shelter. It's an hour and 15 minutes away from me. 
it took me seven hours to get there. And just because the the traffic of people trying to get out of the state was so high. And then as I'm stopping at stores, trying to collect up more carriers, there were no carriers to be found. So it was a, it was a real eye opener. Well, Cameron, I do remember seeing on Facebook or somewhere that you did get those carriers. <laughs> well, I, I scrounged up as many as I could. Most of them came from my own supply, but at the same time, I did find finally found one store that had the last few that we needed, and we were able to get 73 animals out of that shelter into safety, which was amazing. And I think that is an interesting point. Number one is that you were really focusing on moving those animals that are up for adoption, getting those out of a potential target area ahead of time, ahead of the storm, because I do remember seeing things where they were pulling animals, transporting them out after the storm. You know, lots of press about, oh, well, don't worry, these animals are not owned animals. They were animals that were in the shelter that need to be transferred out of state to make room for animals that are looking for reuniting with their families. But it sounds like you are taking a proactive stance and trying to get those those cats and dogs moved out you know, ahead of time. Well, and not a lot of shelters actually thought about that, uh, which again, is a learning experience. So a lot of shelters thought, well, we're not going to be impacted. We don't need to worry. But then when the storm changed path, they found out, oh boy, we really should have taken advantage of that. And I would definitely encourage anyone, you know, if you're in a in a place like Florida where with hurricanes, we do kind of have a heads up of what might be coming. Even if it changes paths, we still have a couple of days to know we need to start preparing now rather than, you know, if we were in, say, where, you know, Mexico had an earthquake. You can't necessarily predict that. So that's something where those people didn't have the time to get ready. But but definitely, I think moving forward, everybody does need to have a plan in place and, and moving those animals out ahead of time is, is key. And a lot of receiving shelters really wanted to help storm victims. But remember, they are helped by pulling animals that are already in the shelters. They are helping those post-storm victims because they're making room for them because those animals do have to be held longer for the reunification with their family. And um, the shelters only have limited resources. So we don't want the shelters to be put in a position where they're euthanizing pre-storm victims to make room for the post-storm ones. So what were the positive outcomes from this storm? Were there things that were created, developed, ideas that came out of this storm that really helped create some positive things in the animal welfare community? Well, definitely. So one of the the biggest things that came out of it was a funding collaborative that was put together um, by Petco, PetSmart Charities, Houston Pet Set, and a Kinder World Foundation. So these funders all said, you know what? We could work smarter together than individually. And even though they're funding people individually, they, they set up this centralized website with a centralized grant application. Because again, if you're a shelter that's impacted by a storm or a disaster, Disaster, you know you need help, but you don't necessarily have the time to go to like five or 10 individual funders. You just want to go one place, submit one application and see if all those people will help you. So I think that was amazing. We also had a lot of private companies that were really quick to want to send in supplies. Um, we had a lot of, of medical uh, suppliers sending vaccines, tests, microchips, because again, when you have these displaced animals, you want to make sure 
we keep them healthy while we're waiting for their families to reunite, or if they're going to be shipped out to other organizations, you know, having them chipped was great. Also, just the collaboration amongst shelters was phenomenal. So we had shelters that weren't impacted by the storms that were like, you know what, we can step up, send us your animals. And there were just certain shelters that that come to my mind that just went above and beyond pulling animals in, transporting, having their their staff and volunteers driving throughout the night to pick up animals from one shelter to take them to another point where they could then you know, be safe and ultimately find homes. And those, again, are pre-storm victims. We're not, it's really important for people to understand we're not taking animals that potentially have owners and shipping them out of state. We're keeping those in their communities. But again, those pre-storm animals needed to get out. Let's make helping cats in your community easier. Join me and over 10 exceptional leaders for the first ever online cat conference. This virtual conference will be held January 26th through 28th, 2018, and will feature speakers like Brian Cordes of Neighborhood Cats, Hannah Shaw, the Kitten Lady, Katie Lisnick of the Humane Society of the United States, Nell Thompson from Getting to Zero in Australia, and many, many more. This is an affordable opportunity to learn from nationally and internationally known leaders in the field of community cat management and care. To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and sign up today to register. Fees go up on December 1st. Let's make helping cats easier in your community. Recently, I met the founders of Smalls, a Brooklyn-based company that makes human-grade food for cats. They gently cook the food just like you would at home to preserve all the nutrients and then ship it to you frozen. Their food is almost all super high quality meat with no fillers or grains of any sort and just a tiny bit of veggies for vitamins and minerals. As natural hunters and meat eaters, this is exactly the type of food cats need and actually quite similar to my ketogenic diet. I've signed up to try Smalls because I feel that my cats deserve real food that is easy to prepare. Many of you know that I am not a fan of spending time in the kitchen. If you want to see the difference real species-appropriate food can make for yourself, go to smallsforsmalls.com and give it a try. You can get 50% off your first order. So go for it. So as Florida recovers from the hurricane, are animals getting reunited with their families? You know, some are, but I'll tell you, especially with cats, even in your normal everyday uh, situations, the return to owner rates for cats are virtually nothing. So we're, we're not seeing any increase for cats being reunited. It's more so with dogs. And hopefully one day that will change. But it's really, you know, and, and so the other thing, like one of the things that came up was holding animals for 30 days post-storm. While it sounds wonderful because we do want animals to be reunited with their families, um, we, f- we feel that the the cat numbers are not justifying it. And of course, every cat who gets reunited is a major blessing. But if we're holding animals and it's it's not having the outcome we want, we need to rethink how long we're holding them. So that that is one thing that I do hope changes in the future. And, and again, you know, sheltering animals for long periods of time isn't always in the best interest of the animal. So so those are things we definitely need to look at. It's interesting. So, you know, if you were faced with this challenge of uh, another approaching hurricane, you know, thinking ahead a year to the next hurricane season, we are going to have more hurricanes. How would you approach it differently? Well, I definitely think we need to 
really focus on pre-positioning our supplies, making sure that our emergency response teams have the supplies needed on hand, whether they're stored in a warehouse or or somewhere. Um, one of the things we did find is uh, we had suppliers wanting to ship in crates to be used in these pet-friendly shelters, but because uh, you know, things happened and uh, the suppliers stopped delivering. So say you have UPS or FedEx that says, hey, we're not sending our vehicles and our planes into this hurricane zone. And so then we had supplies that were sitting in another state. So definitely um, planning ahead and pre-positioning your supplies is really, really important. And then for for shelters, whether you are computerized or not, having your records prepared for your animals in advance, planning to evacuate ahead of time, um, rather than waiting and to see if disaster strikes, that's really important. You know, making sure your animals have like ID bands or microchips so that if they are transferred out, the receiving shelters know who they are. You know, just doing everything that you can. I feel some counties in Florida were better prepared than others. But again, it's it's a learning experience. And until you go through it, you don't know. But I think we're all looking at this um, at a global level to figure out what can we do better next time. Yeah. I mean, I am in, in envisioning like a microchipping campaign in July or something pre-hurricane season to try and really motivate people to get their pets microchipped. Definitely. And that's one thing that the animal shelters are doing now is they are, they are really ramping up those microchips so that when, when the pets are reunited, they can say, look, now your pet will never have to go through that again. If, if this ever happens, we can contact you immediately. So let's talk a bit about animal transports. You can't just flip on a switch and boom, your animals are from Florida. They've, you know, gone to Connecticut. So you know, was this done, I don't want to say, you know, appropriately, or was it like people driving cars down from shelters and loading up four or five animals and bringing them back to an adoption agency, you know, up in another part of the country? I mean, was it ragtag or was it organized? How how did that work? You know, I would, I would, say it was controlled chaos, but it was amazing. Um, There were organizations like the ASPCA, which set up temporary staging centers that could hold, you know, up to a thousand animals. And they were sending their transport teams in. You had Best Friends Animal Society sending in teams working with all of their network partners to find out who had transport vehicles, who could do what. So on one sense, it was very organized. But in another sense, we did have a lack of centralized communication. So a transport vehicle may have gone to one particular shelter anticipating picking up 50 animals. But by the time they got there, maybe they only picked up 30 because other rescues had pulled. And instead of knowing like, hey, I could go to this next door shelter and pick up more animals, they just turned around and left. So we learned that we need to tighten up on our communication. But again, it's hard when you have multiple agencies working. So we did find there was um, some groups were working in silos, not not because they were intentionally trying to work on their own, but because we just didn't have a system in place. There was a lot of duplication of efforts. So again, these are learning things that we're going to try to focus on in the future. Now in Florida, well, and around the country, there's, we were tied into the state incident command system. So in theory, that is a centralized communication base and every county is tied into their emergency operations center. 
But what we learned were a lot of the smaller counties weren't necessarily used to working with animal welfare. They were focused on human needs. So when a shelter would call and say, these are our needs, these smaller communities would say, we don't deal with animals, you're on your own. Well, that was a failure. But again, it's being addressed. And then you have nonprofit agencies that are, you know, have a contract with their city or county. And again, they weren't necessarily calling into their emergency operation system because they're like, we're nonprofit. What are they going to do for us? But again, if we don't utilize that that centralized emergency operations center, how will we know what our needs are and how will we be able to get the help to those communities? So that's definitely something I think that will improve the next time. Interesting. Oh, and then also about transport, I would I would strongly recommend ASPCA Pro has an amazing seven-part series on transport. It's called Companion Animal Transport Best Practices. And whether you are that Good Samaritan volunteer that can load five dogs up in your SUV or you are a volunteer with a shelter with a large transport vehicle, everyone should watch that series. It gives really good do's and don'ts and just helpful reminders because again, we think, gosh, how hard is it to move animals from one place to another? But there is a lot of logistics involved. So I definitely would recommend that that webinar series. Fascinating. I think that the whole realm of communications is really important because the last thing you want is, you know, duplication or triplication of effort and somebody working really hard to make something happen and then say, oh, sorry, we we don't have what you need. Right. And one, one thing we also learned, so there were a lot of organizations that wanted to help the dogs. Cats always have the short end of the stick, I feel, which is why I got into cat rescue in the, in the first place. So there's a huge need for receiving shelters and receiving organizations for cats. And, and even though a lot of cats were saved through these transport efforts, what we found were the transport people were like, look, we can't take out any more cats because we don't have any receiving shelters to take them to. So we want to make sure that every organization is following best practices and they have all their programs in place that are designed to reduce length of stay and increase their live outcome for cats so that they do always have room to help more. Because again, when we're transporting animals out to another agency, you want to make sure you're not sending them to a bad place. And and not that shelters, you know, would intentionally do that. Everybody has good intentions. But again, the idea is not to send them to an overcrowded shelter where they're going to sit for six months. We want them to go someplace where they can, you know, quickly um, move into a permanent live outcome. It's interesting. So I find this fascinating. So much of this is similar to what we need to do on a day-to-day basis. You know, these transport lessons that we're hearing about, they are things we need to think about when we're just doing transport on a regular basis. And as organizations uh, choosing to receive cats, ideally, we should all be receiving cats then, you know, we need to think about their length of stay and our ability to to promote them and get them adopted in a timely fashion. So this is a really interesting topic, not only for hurricanes and other disasters, but I think it's also very interesting for just our our day-to-day practices. Cameron, if there are folks that are interested in finding you, asking you any more questions about your experiences 
in Florida with the hurricane. Uh, how could they find you? They can reach me via email at cameron.moore at ufl.edu. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? One thing I, I definitely, I had forgotten to mention earlier is that we saw a lot more pet-friendly shelters opening up in counties that never had those before, which was phenomenal because a lot of times people will not evacuate when they can't take their pets. So that was really wonderful that, that people were able to seek safety with their pet family members. And I hope that just continues in the future. Yeah, I think that is fantastic. It seemed to be a much more commonplace, certainly this time around, versus Katrina. And maybe that was one of the larger lessons learned from that terrible hurricane. Right. And, and um, one, one last thing is that even though hurricane season is over, we still have a huge need in Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, all these areas that were hit by the hurricanes this season. So I hope shelters will continue to reach out and see what they can do to help. That's excellent. Cameron, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me today and agreeing to be a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. It's always fun, Stacy. Thank you. The Community Cats podcast will soon be a year old with over 200 episodes profiling amazing people who are all making a difference in the lives of community cats. If you would like to support the show, but not be a sponsor, feel free to contribute to our efforts by going to www.communitycatspodcast.com and follow the donate link. Help us to continue to provide excellent programming. 